0: Very much welcome to this podcast about iron deficiency in women. Um, I am Dr. Gård, Gunnar Birgirgaard from Uppsala, Sweden, professor of hematology. And I am the host for this podcast, which is the third in a seven-part series about iron deficiency uh, problems in various diagnoses. And uh, we are talking about the mechanisms behind uh, iron deficiency, how to recognize and diagnose and treat it. And uh, the series, the whole series funded by EHA. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts uh, and also see other resources, just visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. The purpose of the podcast is to share up-to-date information from expert physicians with a wider audience. And um, it will be in the form of a discussion between myself and uh, Dr. Noemi Roy this time. I am a hematologist who has had a long-term interest in iron deficiency, and uh, therefore uh, we will uh, have this as a conversation So, Dr. Noemi Roy, could you please introduce yourself and tell us uh, where you work, how you work, and what your interest in this area is?
1: Of course. Uh, Thank you very much, Gunnar, and thank you for inviting me on this podcast. So my name is Noemi Roy. I'm a consultant hematologist, and I work at the University Hospital in Oxford in the UK. I'm a red cell haematologist, so I work with uh, all sorts of different types of anemias, some very rare and some very common, including iron deficiency. I'm interested in iron deficiency, not only how is the best way to diagnose it, but also how is the best way to treat it. And as we will probably discuss, a lot of it is based on biology. A lot of it, we don't know the biology and a lot of it is about how we organize a service to make sure we do the best thing for our patients.
0: Thank you. So we will really not talk about iron deficiency in general in other categories of patients, but we will focus on women. And uh, also concerning the function of iron, you're all well aware of the role in producing hemoglobin. What we have tended to forget, is that iron is essential for a lot of other functions in all cells of the body. And therefore the symptoms of iron deficiency may be very varied. And the cardinal symptom of fatigue is not only due to iron deficiency anemia, but also to other effects of iron deficiency, which really explains some of the new data that we will talk about. So let's start a bit with talking about so-called mild deficiency of iron and also about iron deficiency without anemia. Is this something that you have seen um, a lot of, Noemi?
1: So I think it's something that is more common than we realize. And as hematologists, it's something that often doesn't even come into uh, our knowledge because usually the patients are not referred to us until the anemia is there. But once we have patients who who have anemia and we follow them up, we can definitely see that iron deficiency on its own, even when the anemia is corrected and as the iron stores fall again for some particular patients, uh, iron deficiency on its own is enough to cause some significant symptoms, including fatigue.
0: Yes, and that's one interesting fact that has been clear over uh, the last few years. Actually, it's been discussed for for centuries. (laughs) Uh, And it's been said that iron deficiency without anemia can give symptoms. But it's not until rather recently that we have seen studies actually showing this. And the key point of those studies, what do you think that is, Noemi?
1: So it's really about what is the iron doing? So the iron is important not only for making, uh, as you said, hemoglobin in red cells, But iron is really important for lots of different functions. So it's cell growth and differentiation, it's neurotransmission, it's immunity, and especially with recently with COVID, we've seen a lot of interesting data about iron and immunity and its cardiopulmonary function. And I think a good thing to remember is the role of iron in the electron transport chain. So that if you think about the fact that you need iron to use the oxygen that your red cells are transporting once the oxygen gets to the cell, then it starts to make sense why iron deficiency, even without anemia, will cause fatigue.
0: Now, the, the, for those of you who have seen uh, the material with the case that we have discussed, uh, the woman with uh, uh, menstrual and uh, uh, iron deficiency anemia, but later also had symptoms when her serum ferritin fell, when the stores became small. Um, uh, You have also seen that uh, she did well when she got iron in that situation, even though her anemia was uh, the same. And this has been the case also in some recent studies with um, symptomatic iron loss or rather not, even diagnosed loss, but small sim small stores of iron, but without without any anemia. So, uh, Noemi, what was the the main effect of the iron given to those women?
1: So, in terms of replacing iron in patients who are iron deficient but not anemic, you're improving things like fatigue we've talked about, but also your exercise capacity your general cognitive performance so memory and work performance the other aspects that can improve are hair loss and uh, some patients have very restless legs with iron deficiency
0: yes and i'm not sure that uh, restless legs syndrome is a very well-known entity among hematologists but actually it's it's not uncommon at all as uh, on effect of iron deficiency and it's a very painful uh, thing to have i think that's where
1: you're you're right uh, gunnar about quality of life isn't it where um us doctors tend to look at numbers so we look at somebody's uh full blood count show a low normal hemoglobin we'll look at the iron uh the ferritin and it will be say low normal from the uh of the normal range And as a doctor, we feel quite happy that everything's fine. But for the patient, that might be a different story. And I think we have to really shift our thinking to what is the patient's quality of life and what can we do to improve that? Because something like restless legs doesn't sound serious, but if it's keeping you up every night, it has major impacts even on your mental health.
0: Uh, Let's uh, talk a bit about um, the rather common situation where a, a young woman comes to the doctor in primary care and says that I have fatigue. I I don't know what it is. I have been healthy, but now I'm so tired. And the doctor finds nothing wrong. Normal hemoglobin, serum ferritin uh, within the normal range, even though it's low normal. And what usually happens in that situation? what What is your experience?
1: Well, quite often patients will be sent away at that stage. Um, We have to remember, of course, fatigue is a a symptom that is common to a lot of different conditions. So we do have to think outside our hematology box and consider thyroid disorders, autoimmune conditions, Um, people's um, lifestyle sometimes will explain fatigue. But I think once those have been excluded, just having a low serum ferritin is enough to want to Um, try at least the intervention of would replacing the iron make a difference to this patient. We, We also have to think about sort of long term whose role it is. And I suppose sometimes that's the question is as hematologists, some hematologists think iron deficiency isn't really a hematological issue. So it's about working with the primary care doctors to improve their understanding of the importance of iron. And just a one-off serum ferritin is probably not enough to decide what to do with the patient in the long-term. A lot of that will be about patient education. What are they eating? Are there ways of improving the dietary iron intake in their, in their day-to-day living? And if that's not possible or doesn't make any difference, what other advice is available?
0: Yeah. And when you say that usually those patients are sent away, one common um, way that they are going is actually to psychiatry. They are sent to a psychologist or a psychiatrist because um, the doctor feels that this is uh, psychosomatic. So, and of course, that is sometimes true. But before we do that, we should really try iron repletion because modern studies have shown that there is a significant amount of patients among these young or older women who actually get help from replacing the iron stalls. Now, going back to the case that we discussed with the menstrual losses, often these patients are handled of course in primary care and sometimes by gynecologists. gynecologist I have had the privilege of seeing some of those patients long term, and I think in any hematological setting, there should at least be someone who keeps monitoring these patients to get experience of what it is actually about and how to to do it. Um, So I think that's a good idea for any hematological unit. Now, one thing that that was stressed in this case was the long time follow up. What is your comment on that?
1: Yes, well, especially if we're talking about a woman's reproductive life, there will be lots of different aspects to that. So you'll have, you know, the teenage years with the beginning of menstrual bleeding. And actually, I think, again, a lot of teenagers are probably iron deficient, and not, and that's not often recognized. It's not often that um, primary care physicians like to take blood from teenage patients. And when you see how late the teenagers go to bed, it's assumed that the tiredness is all due to that. But with uh, regular menstrual bleeding, it's not uncommon to see very iron deficient teenagers, including anemic ones. And then we are looking at um, a period of women's lives when they will be having children. And it's important to think about uh, not only one pregnancy but as a woman goes from one pregnancy into the next one and the difference between going into a pregnancy iron replete and going into a second pregnancy more likely to be iron deficient and then we have to discuss about what happens in the um perimenopausal time and postmenopausally and so really when we're talking about long term follow up it's really important during the course of a woman's lifetime to be considering iron at all these different aspects of her life, because the needs will be different and the the way we would approach it would be different as well.
0: Yeah. And of course, um, the thing that makes iron deficiency into a woman's disease is uh, reproduction, uh, because there is such a, a great need for iron. in in things that that uh, regulate the reproduction. Going back to monitoring uh, a woman with menstrual losses, um, what do you think would be the best way to monitor her situation?
1: So I think it's important to really get a good idea of her menstrual losses. Are we talking very heavy? If somebody has very heavy periods, should we be considering as well as replacing the iron Is there a way to reduce the amount of bleeding? So you can be thinking about using the combined oral contraceptive pill, if that is relevant or uh, if that's possible and there's no contraindications. And the use of tranexamic acid. So tranexamic acid taken during the days of bleeding can really reduce menstrual blood loss and can reduce the impact of iron deficiency Um, or even in some people control it completely.
0: Yes. And in some countries and in certain times, it has been quite common to actually um, to operate on women with heavy losses. Uh, So that a lot of women uh, have uh, been uh, operated on. Um, And uh, in my experience, that is very, very seldom uh, necessary. If you, as you say, look at, at how to reduce the menstrual losses, and uh, how to uh, to give them iron enough is yes, that I also do. your experience I, I would
1: i would agree so I, I do think there are some women who have particularly large fibroids um who have excessive bleeding and in whom surgery can be helpful but unfortunately fibroids can also grow again even after they've been removed surgically so it would definitely be a a solution of last resort that we would that we would use
0: So what happens when uh, a woman with menstrual iron losses and iron deficiency, who we have now followed and managed till menopause, then what happens at menopause?
1: So um, I I would the the really critical thing about menopause and looking at postmenopausal women is Whereas before the menopause, you would accept a degree of iron deficiency due to the menstrual blood loss. If somebody continues to be iron deficient after the menopause, you must think in the same way that you would do if a man presents with iron deficiency, which is to think about um, GI causes of bleeding, which of course can also happen before the menopause. But the worry is that you would miss a, for example, a colon cancer because you've continued to um, treat this woman as a premenopausal woman in whom iron deficiency is understood. So, postmenopausal women, you must investigate iron deficiency the same way you would investigate men.
0: Well, we are going to go into pregnancy now, or rather to discuss pregnancy. But before we do that, there is something that we should mention because it's a, a rather new knowledge. And that is one cause of iron deficiency, both in men and women, but uh, a bit more common in women, which has to do uh, with a bacteria.
1: Yes, well, a very important bacteria. So Helicobacter pylori, which um, can cause uh, stomach ulcers, duodenal ulcers, can also be responsible for um, iron deficiency.
0: Even without bleeding.
1: And it's and it's very rarely thought of as a cause. And if people don't have the typical symptoms of ulcers, then they're very rarely tested for Helicobacter pylori.
0: Yeah. But it has been shown that it is quite common, if you look at the material of um, people with, uh, with unexplained iron deficiency, uh, finding uh, Helicobacter pylori is quite a common finding. And there are nice studies showing that uh, treating these patients with eradication of the bacterium also improves uh, the iron deficiency. So I thought we should mention that before we go on to pregnancy. We know that there is an approximate need of one gram of iron during a normal pregnancy. And even if there is a change in the absorption so that uh, women absorb more iron at the end of pregnancy, um, that is often not enough. So could we uh, mention a bit about why it's important to be iron replete before even the pregnancy starts or in the beginning?
1: Yes. Um, so we expect all women to get a decrease in their hemoglobin during the pregnancy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're anemic because of obviously there's a dilutional element at the beginning. But iron is so critical for the fetus that um, the fetus is, in fact, extremely good at taking the iron from the mother. And so the mother will need excess iron, not only for her own increased need for red blood cells, but the baby's needs. And that includes both red blood cells and, um, well, all of the tissues, but in particular, the developing brain. And we do know from quite a few studies um, not all of which are ideally um, designed or carried out, but there's enough data really to show that there's an association between um, iron deficiency during pregnancy and then poor outcomes. And those poor outcomes can be for the mother and for the baby. So we know that they're more likely to have low birth weight to undergo a preterm delivery. The mother's more likely to require a blood transfusion or to have a cesarean section.
0: Yeah. And actually, anemia after partum, the most common reason for that is also anemia before. So um, it is quite important to to have good iron stores when when you start uh, the pregnancy. Then how do we see to that? I know that that, um, it varies a lot between countries and even within countries. how we in healthcare try to guarantee that the the mothers have a good eye on the situation at the beginning of the pregnancy. What is your recommendation?
1: So my recommendation would be um, that it's important to find out. So if you don't know, you can't help. So all women should really have their ferritin checked early in pregnancy. And Really, the the rationale also for trying to make sure you go into a pregnancy iron replete is that by the time you get your uh, positive pregnancy test, already some critical development has already happened. So that's one of the reasons for replacing your iron before you even try to get pregnant. But for those who haven't done that, that at least a ferritin early in pregnancy can um, let you see to what extent we need to be thinking about iron replacement. And then we have to think about, um, you know, do you treat only the women who are iron, um, who are iron deficient, as shown by your ferritin, or is it better just to replace iron in everybody because it's likely that iron is low or at least at the lower end of normal in most women? Now I guess one thing Gunnar we haven't talked about is what would be the harm of iron. What what is the harm of giving iron to people who are not iron deficient? And another thing we haven't really mentioned is the fact that here we're talking really for um, women who are living in a system where there is um, very good prenatal care and we're not today specifically discussing women living in um, developing countries where, for example, there would be malaria and lots of infections because giving iron in the context of um, infections and malaria can cause more harm than good whereas when you have um, a when you're in a more developed country and those are not issues then there is very little harm that comes from giving
0: iron oh absolutely and especially in the doses that we're talking about here and I would even be willing to, uh, to question what you're saying about the, <laughs> the risks with iron in the development countries. But uh, that goes uh, far beyond our discussion today. But anyway, the, the routine then differs a lot. In many places in Sweden, it's become uh, common to say that if the serum ferritin is above 60 micrograms per mil, you don't need uh, to start any iron treatment. Whereas if it's below 60, either you take a new one within a month or you uh, even start giving them iron. Uh, Do you have an an opinion there?
1: Um, I think a lot of this, as you say, will depend on um, the country and the guidelines that have been developed. Um, None of these cutoff values are evidence-based essentially, the lower your ferritin, the the worse it is. So everybody will draw their cutoff somewhere in terms of when you should start replacing it. The other question is, in the UK, most women will just have one ferritin estimation done at 12 weeks, whereas you can be above the cutoff value, whether that's 50 or 60, it doesn't matter. But that's still fairly low. And if you never check the ferritin again, you may not notice that the woman is becoming iron-deficient in the late stages of pregnancy. And in particular, you won't notice that she is iron-deficient postpartum. And for a woman who is going to go into another pregnancy with a fairly short time between two pregnancies, that means she's going into her second pregnancy very iron-deficient.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with you um, that these levels that people rely on are very arbitrary. And there is no no real hard evidence behind, for instance, the limit of sixty, but rather it's um, it's emphasizing that what we should do nowadays, because there have been studies nicely showing this, is not to have a general recommendation to all women, but to actually individualize by measuring serum ferritin, and then saying what is good for this woman, instead of saying that everybody should take iron. That is inefficient that has been shown many times so it's much better to individualize and follow the woman and the development during during the pregnancy and really treating them and then we come to the mode of treatment um, there are recommendations concerning oral or intravenous iron during pregnancy what is your take on that
1: so i think this is where it gets really exciting And I think this is where we don't have all the data that we need, and this data is being acquired as we speak. But there are times when I think before the data is really available from a nice randomised controlled trial, the early data is good enough that we can start to change what we recommend. So if we look at the recommendations for oral iron, which have been for a long time to give, Um, replacement three times a day. There's really no data on which to base that decision that made it into the early guidelines, which people have been adhering to for many years. Whereas now we know that we can tell from studies that have been done in iron deficient women who were not anemic, that when you take an iron tablet, your body responds very quickly by increasing the level of hepcidin, which is the hormone that controls how much iron you absorb. And so taking one iron tablet means that you then shut the doors to further absorption. So if you're going to take a second iron tablet within the same day, you will absorb even less of the second tablet than you did of the first one, and the same again for a third one. So when we were talking about harm of iron, Most women or most people who take iron tablets will find that they will get a lot of side effects. These side effects can differ between individuals, can include constipation, it can be diarrhea, can be a bit of gastritis, nausea. And by giving people iron three times a day, you're giving them maximum side effects and you're actually not optimizing the absorption.
0: Yeah, actually, our standard in the Nordic area is uh, 100 milligrams of iron sulfate twice a day. Uh, so uh, even that may be counterproductive. Um, you, you talked about nausea, and that has importance for the timing of iron fortification in, in uh, pregnancy, of course. Uh, we don't recommend iron treatment if it's not necessary during the first trimester because many women are nauseous anyway during that period.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a a good idea. And I guess one thing we haven't mentioned, Gunnar, is um, red meat. So it's all very well for us doctors to be prescribing tablets, but you do get, if you're iron deficient, you do get very good absorption of iron from red meat, uh, more so than of any other type of iron in foods. And I do think it's worth discussing if you've got a woman who's iron deficient, discussing how much red meat she eats and whether that could be improved or increased.
0: Mm. Now, there will be a lot of problems discussing red meat nowadays. Absolutely. (laughs) But, of course, you are right. Uh, The timing of um, the treatment during, during pregnancy, then, depends, of course, on the development. If the serum ferritin increases during a, a treatment with, say, just one tablet a day, uh, we should be happy. But if nothing happens, if the woman is, for instance, anemic at the end of the second trimester, what would you recommend there?
1: So we can definitely think about IV iron, and we do give IV iron to a lot of women. Um, one thing I, I would say, is really important to understand when you're thinking about who is monitoring the who is monitoring the response and how they're monitoring it so are you monitoring the hemoglobin are you monitoring the ferritin are you monitoring my favorite one is reticulocyte count so you may not see straight away a rise in hemoglobin but if you can see the reticulocyte count is going up then that's a good indication that that the that the woman is responding but you're right, some women will not respond, and sometimes that's because they're not taking it because they still find the side effects are not acceptable, even from one tablet a day. Um, if I'm worried of the hemoglobin being too low or the ferritin is just staying low despite oral replacement for at least two, three, or sometimes even four weeks, then I would definitely go to IV iron. And this, there are very few women who won't respond to IV iron, and the response tends to be um, more sustained.
0: With regard to the time, to the time that we have, in order to, for instance, improve hemoglobin, we have to remember that that improving hemoglobin by oral iron or a higher dose of oral iron is probably not going to be successful if we have only one month to do it. So the woman needs to really improve her hemoglobin before the party's delivery, and it's much safer to give intravenous iron at that time. So we're coming then to the situation uh, around delivery. As we said, it's very well known that anemia before delivery uh, is really a common thing in order to predict uh, anemia after delivery. A common situation is, of course, a large bleeding. And sometimes we hematologists get a question Uh, from the neonatal care, what should we do with this woman? She has had uh, a bleeding of 600 mils. Uh, What should we give her? And what's your answer?
1: My answer is not blood. (laughs) So I think somebody who's had a large bleed who's hemodynamically stable, I would certainly give intravenous iron and they should respond very quickly in terms of um, the next few weeks, the hemoglobin should rise again. And should the red cell should be, you know, using the iron that you've made available by the intravenous infusion. Um, I would, I would give blood if the patient is really symptomatic from the anemia. So again, this goes back to our question earlier of um, making sure that your iron replete and not anemic as you go into your delivery, because you then have more um, resilience to losing some blood. If you're going in anemic and iron deficient and you lose blood, you will almost certainly need a blood transfusion.
0: And why is it so important for a woman who has just had a delivery, has just had a child to have a, a good hemoglobin situation when she comes home?
1: Well, I think uh, it's uh, quite a tough job to look after a newborn baby. Lots of breastfeeding or bottle feeding. You're up all hours of the night and it's exhausting at the best of times and you really you need to bond with your baby, you need to be as um, in as good a mental state as possible. And again, like we were discussing earlier, the more uh, the, the better you feel in yourself, the more you'll be able to cope with um, this very difficult but crucial time in your and the baby's life.
0: Yes. And there are studies showing that the bonding is becoming more difficult if you have symptoms of iron deficiency. Also, I think we could add that the joy, the happiness of coming home with a newborn child, it's a tragedy is if that is destroyed by a fatigue that you really don't need to have because you're iron deficient. Now, if we go back to the general situation and talk about the choice between iron uh, intravenously and iron orally, I think we agree that, that the standard treatment in usual iron deficiency, is uh, to begin with uh, oral iron. Then there is one specific point about that. In some countries, uh, doctors recommend vitamin C addition to iron tablets in order to improve absorption. Is so that the case in the UK? So I'm glad you
1: brought that up, Gunnar, and I think you and I disagree on this. (laughs) Um, So there's um, a good sort of biological reason why vitamin C would be helping to increase iron absorption. So first of all, I would say that um, you should take your iron tablet uh, without food. So when you're taking food, You will reduce the amount of iron that's absorbed. And the other thing that's very important is that calcium will reduce iron absorption. So, if you're taking iron, you should take it on an empty stomach. The reason we recommend vitamin C is because um, the form of iron that's in the tablet would be ferric iron, and you would reduce it to ferrous iron to be able to absorb it. And the vitamin C will be helping with that. chemical reaction. But I know, Gunnar, you don't necessarily think that da- the data isn't very strong. I tell every patient to take their iron tablet on an empty stomach with a glass of orange juice 30 minutes before food.
0: Yeah, I know it's common in the UK. It's absolutely not common in the, in the Nordic area. And the reason is mainly that um, there's very little evidence for an increase in iron absorption from tablets in a, an anemic situation. Um, one explanation that has been given is that the absorption is on such a high level anyway from the anemia that you can't increase it further with with the vitamin C. So it may be a different situation when you don't when you're not anemic. Um, but anyway, um, it's interesting to see how traditions are different in in different countries.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's always been told that the more different ways there are of doing something, the less evidence there
0: is. (laughs) Because if
1: there was good evidence, we'd all be doing the same thing.
0: Talking about uh, how to take uh, uh, iron tablets. Actually, I usually tell my patients to, um, if they start iron treatment with tablets, to first do it with food. Because taking it on an empty stomach increases the risk of nausea and other gastrointestinal symptoms quite uh, severely. So I tell them, try first with food. If that goes all right, then you try on an empty stomach. Uh, Otherwise, I lose some of the patients who will then reduce their dose or not take it at all.
1: That's very good advice. I shall remember that.
0: Now, in terms of intravenous iron, there have been now uh, a production of, of new Uh, new formulations that are available uh, during the last uh, 10 years or so. And do you think there is any very important difference between the new formulations?
1: Well, I think the main difference is about the risk of anaphylaxis. So one of the worries that's always been given around giving intravenous iron and intramuscular iron, that is the way it was originally given, is the risk of um anaphylactic reactions and that's not to do with the iron itself but with the molecule that carries the iron so the more modern formulations are safer from that point of view they often can be easier to give and given in fewer doses um having said that i think sometimes people are under treated when they're given iv iron
0: yeah And with the new new formulations, you can usually give up to a 1000 milligrams in one shot, which is, of course, uh, beneficial in many situations.
1: The other question we should think about um, is what happens in terms of uh, hypophosphatemia, which is something that can happen as a reaction to intravenous iron. And I know that uh, some people have done some work looking at uh, hypophosphatemia in pregnant women um, and that it's probably more common than we than we realize and it's probably something we don't monitor well enough when we're giving IV iron
0: well we are nearing the end of this uh, uh, discussion and i just want to give uh, the listeners something to think about usually after delivery a woman goes home in sweden for instance after sometimes three hours, sometimes six hours, very seldom more than one day, which means that it is a big problem that the doctors don't have any data showing the iron situation or even the hemoglobin level if there hasn't been a big bleeding or something like that. Uh, So usually women go home without anyone knowing what their iron situation is and what their hemoglobin is. And that is not an easy task to change. So uh, that is food for thought. And I'll leave you with that because there is really no simple solution. But to summarize what we've been talking about then, iron deficiency anemia is prevalent, even in the rich world, 70 to 10% of menstruating women have it, and about 25% have very small iron stores. Even mild iron deficiency anemia and iron deficiency anemia may give symptoms and iron repletions should be tried in such cases. We also talk about uh, that iron deficiency caused by menstrual loss needs follow-up and care until menopause. And we've we'll talked about the need for such a substitution during pregnancy. Uh, Women who have poor iron stores from the beginning will be at a high risk for iron deficiency. And serum ferritin estimations in the early phase is important for an individual advice. And I would want to thank you, Noemi, very much for being our experts in this area.
1: Thank you, Gunnar.
0: I welcome everybody to listen to the next podcast, which will be about iron deficiency in a totally different area. Thank you very much. And um, bye.